Good morning. Hey, you got an extra hour this morning. <laughs> I got here a little bit more from you in that. Good morning, church. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, in the spring, when you, when you preach, when the time changes, this service is packed, right? Because everyone's like, I need that extra hour. Um, this first service, they had some energy. They had some energy. Uh, my name is Matt Sawada, one of the, the pastors here on staff. I'm the, the pastor of adult ministries. And once again, it's a privilege to open God's word with you this morning. This morning, we'll be beginning in chapter three, the book of Ephesians. Chapter three of Ephesians. Turn there if you have a Bible. If not, raise your hand. One of my friends are coming down or coming up. Would love to, to give you a Bible to use. Uh, or open up the, the Bible app. Go to Uversion. Go to events. Find LEFC. Links to Evangelical Free Church. And you can follow along on your cell phone. Well, the first two chapters of Ephesians are some of my favorite in all of Scripture. They are loaded. They are theologically rich texts, right? The last, I don't know how many weeks, six, seven, eight weeks, as we've stepped through some of the the realities in the first two chapters of Ephesians, Man, studying this just makes my heart want to worship a God who has such a beautiful and wonderful and powerful name. We've seen God uh, explain his Trinitarian relationship. I don't know if you caught that in Ephesians 1. You see God and his son and his spirit interacting. And they each play a part in some of the beautiful realities that we get to then live out and experience. That we see what, what, who God is and what he's done for us. Chapter two then begins with a very real reminder at how human we are. And then you hit verse four. You hit this, but God, who is rich in mercy. And then he begins to explain it is by grace. It is by grace. It is by grace that we have been saved. Chapter two really paints this picture of humanity and its and our need for this wonderful grace. Well, in chapter three, hopefully you're gonna feel it this morning, there's a shift. And it's a pronoun shift. And in Bible study methods, one of the things that you look at is you always gotta ask who's the author, who's the audience, and then you gotta figure out who's talking. Who is, what's going on in this, in this space, in this text? Well, in chapter three, it's kind of fascinating because you'll, you're gonna see two, chapter two was you and them and theirs. Well, in chapter three, he starts saying I and me and mine. And it's almost like he's doing his introduction two chapters too late. It's like, Paul, what are, you, what, are you, what are you thinking? Obviously, it's sovereign and inspired, but it doesn't make sense. And so what we're going to see in chapter 3, uh, you, you see uh, this first sentence. It, it says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. 
And then he begins this parenthesis. It's almost like Paul has a squirrel moment, right? He's going into chapter three wanting to pray. And he ends the chapter with a beautiful prayer. We'll get there in a couple weeks. You can read ahead if you want. So you got chapter, verse one and verse 14 on. Well, this, this section between two and 13, I'm gonna take the first half, we'll, we'll complete this parentheses next week. But it's almost as if um, Paul was, was beginning in a direction and then shifts, needing to explain something. So my hope this morning is that as we step through Ephesians 3, verses one through seven, we'll walk away not only with a better understanding of who our God is and what he's done on our behalf, but we'll walk away with a better understanding of who Paul is and a clearer picture of this mystery that he paints throughout the book of Ephesians. Would you please pray with me? And then we'll jump into Ephesians 3, 1 through 7. Father, we are so grateful We're grateful for the gift of faith, this gift of grace that you have extended to us. There is nothing that I or we could have done to earn what you've done for us. So Lord, we we come before you now realizing that we desperately need you. We need you to to open our eyes to understand this mystery. Father, we've needed you to, to offer a substitute on our behalf, and his name is Jesus. So Lord, this morning, it's not about me. It's not about this church. It ultimately is about you. And so please, Lord, get the glory that you deserve this time. Thanks, Father, for an opportunity to worship you with brothers and sisters, with this family of LEFC. Be honored in the way we open and interact with your word today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles if you haven't already. We're going to be in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. And I'm just going to read, I'm going to read the first three verses here this morning. Well, right now, I'll read more later. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. See what I'm talking about? It's kind of an introductory sentence in the middle of the book. I think this makes me ask the question, who is this guy Paul? Who who is he? We know that. I mean, it says in in verse, verse one of chapter one, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we know this guy Paul is an apostle. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. 
He's an apostle not by his own of anything. It's the will of God that's given him that role. We know that Paul is a, he's a church planter. He's traveled. I, I wish we knew how many people he's discipled. But he's been a, a, a driving force that God has used to change the landscape during this time. We know that this guy, Paul, we know now, Paul wrote 13 of these letters, 13 letters. And he uh, has discipled countless people through these letters over the years. We know, especially after the last few weeks, that Paul is especially passionate about the Gentiles receiving the gospel. He's got a special calling to communicate this message to the Gentiles. You know, and if, I, if I'm being honest with you, I often read these 13 letters. I love them. Some of my favorite texts come from Paul's epistles. I often read them from a place of, of, of that. That is the Paul that I assume is the author of these texts. Paul is this seminary professor who is expounding on the character of God for us. But there's more to Paul than I think I've just described. He is one of the, the few individuals that we actually see a significant life change happen to. So on the screen, you'll see a text from one of his other epistles, so the book of Philippians. And what we'll see is these, these verses, chapter three, verses four, five, and six of Philippians, will begin to explain where Paul found his confidence before coming to Christ. Though I myself, I, Paul, have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. I've been circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, he's a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You see, Paul, before coming into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, was a spiritual rock star. He was the man. He was, he, he was considered all of that just from birth. So let me unpack that a little bit. He was circumcised on day eight of the people of Israel. He was a pure-blooded Jew, which meant something in those days. As a, poor, as a person born into the tribe of Benjamin, he was from the most prestigious of Israelite clans. Top. As a Hebrew of Hebrews, his, his family spoke Hebrew. He was basically this walking merit badge among the Jews. Paul, 
from a Jewish standpoint, would have had the envy of all of the Jewish people looking in from the outside. You could say that he was the kid born at the right time, in the right place, from the right family. And he had it all. Had it all. Well, while the first half of Paul's resume contains some of these natural attributes, some of these, uh, these things that he was just born with, the second half of his resume explains his achievements. The first half, there's much he could have done to affect. The last half only builds on his rock star status. See, Paul pr- practiced Judaism as a, as a Pharisee, which was the strictest. It was the, the most respected sect of the Jews. He had an intense and passion to persecute those crazy Christians, those who followed the way. It was unparalleled. His observance of the law, he says, was faultless. It was near perfect. So Paul earned this perfect religious resume. He had reached the top. But I think it's safe to say that in doing so, he was pretty miserable. You see, a person who's so angry that doesn't often connect with joy or even happy. Keep your finger in Ephesians 3, and let's turn back to Acts chapter 7. And I just want to paint the picture of the the landscape, giving you a backdrop of what Paul was before Christ, who Paul was before Christ. So in Acts chapter 7, we're going to be towards the end of it. Um, Giving you a little context here, Acts 7, this is the end of a a sermon given by a a deacon named Stephen. In Acts 6, uh, all the apostles realized that this this growing church had needs, that they had, had some problems they had to solve and they needed help. So what did they do? They recruited um, through the Lord, they, they basically tapped a handful of people to be deacons, specifically to meet the needs of the body. And so this little chunk here that we're going to read in verse 54 comes on the end of Stephen's sermon. Now, a little side note, side plug, one of my roles here as the pastor of adult ministries, I'm the liaison between the deacons and deaconesses and the staff and the elders, kind of the middleman. And the cool part about that is I get to interact with a really faithful group of people. The deacons and deaconesses out there, thank you. What you do is significant. They, they do just what Stephen was intended to do. He was extending mercy in moments of need and desired to connect people in need with those who could actually meet those needs. If you're here looking for a way to get connected into the caring body that LEFC is, join a life group, jump into an ABF, get to know people. On our website, there's this thing called the Mercy Network, check that out. 
We extend quite a bit of care and would love to include you in that, both as an extender and a receiver. And so there are many ways to do that. Plug in. We just really appreciate our deacons and deaconesses. Sorry. Shameless plug for my people. But at the end of the sermon that Stephen was, was preaching here, he, uh, he gets quite a response. Quite a response. I have not been in a worship service with a, a response like this. This is verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, this sermon, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing out of the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they, the Sanchedrin, covers their ears. This is a really mature response. Covers their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They rushed him dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named what? Named Saul. Yeah. While they were stoning him, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He falls on his knees, cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So do you notice who the ringleader was? They were laying their garments in front of him because he was the most passionate. It's this guy named Saul. Yep, the same person, now Paul, who wrote 13 books of your Bible, was the same guy who led the charge to stone Stephen the same guy who was imprisoning the followers of the way. If you fast forward just a little bit to the, the beginning of Acts 9, you begin to see this play out a little bit more. Verse one, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I don't think angry is a good descriptor for this guy. It goes beyond that. He's enraged. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why, why do you persecute me? You can imagine, Saul, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So here's this guy who's been knocked off his donkey and blinded, 
he heads into Damascus, interacts with a man named Ananias, and begins a relationship with Jesus Christ. The man who was passionately persecuting Christians becomes a Christian. This is an amazing conversion. And what you begin to see in this moment is that Paul experiences the mystery that he talks about in the book of Ephesians. That theologically rich text of Ephesians 1 and 2, yeah, Paul not only wrote it, but he lived it. It was personal to Paul. When I was studying this in preparation of the sermon, going back and reading Ephesians in light of Paul's conversion story, I was wow. He's, he's praying, open the eyes of their hearts so that they may know you more. That was Paul. He's talking about the, the, the dirty nastiness of humanity. That was Paul. But God who is rich in mercy, yeah, if anyone needed it, Paul did. If anyone needs it, I do, you do. Every single one of us can relate with Paul's story from one form or another. And this reality of being saved by grace through faith, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Think about it in light of that conversion. It changes it. It's not just academic. This is Paul's heart in this book to this church because he's lived it. It's a story of his conversion. It wasn't just a decision he made, a box he checked. It became his life. It became his, his sustenance, his motivation. Christ became who he depended on because he desperately needed help. That's conversion. This is a journey we live, not just experience once. And so because of this, what Paul does is actually radical. It's radical because he doesn't just leave Jesus behind at the moment of conversion. No, it's radical because it, he becomes convinced that Jesus is exactly what the Gentiles need every day of their lives. It's radical because it's, Jesus is exactly who the Jews need every day of their lives. It's radical because Jesus is exactly who you need every day of your life. And it's radical because Jesus is exactly who I need every day of my life. It's not just a conversion story. It becomes a relationship. It, why is that so important? Why is this conviction radical? It's because without Christ, Paul was pursuing a meaningless righteousness and was miserable and angry and helpless. And he was the rock star. 
It's a reality every one of us relate to in some way or another. And now Paul's convinced of God's character and desires for everyone, Jew and Gentile, to experience the riches, to have these riches lavished on him with all wisdom and understanding, Ephesians 1. And so in Ephesians 3, let's flip back there from Acts, Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, you get this introductory sentence, I, Paul, for this reason, because of my conversion, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, prisoner of Christ Jesus. Fascinating. Paul is actually a prisoner of Caesar at this time. He legitimately is in prison writing this epistle. And he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Caesar. No, he's a prisoner of Jesus. Why is that significant? The man who imprisoned many is now imprisoned by Christ. The man who's actually in prison is a prisoner of Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. It's because of his message of grace that Paul is imprisoned by Caesar. It's because of this message of grace that Paul is imprisoned to Christ. Well, surely, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. Surely, church, in Ephesus, surely you've, you've heard about my Damascus conversion. Surely you've heard about the churches that God has planted through this man. Surely you've read possibly some of the other letters that Paul has written. Surely, church, you remember the days where I was with you. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. So he's saying this message, you've heard it. This isn't new. And then he begins to introduce a word that we're gonna spend a couple minutes unpacking, this word mystery. Surely you have heard about this mystery the mystery made known to me by revelation I've already written. Verse four, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets. So what he's beginning to unpack here is this concept called progressive revelation. That God in his glory gave what Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, he gave them what they needed when they needed it. And they received truth. And Matt Sawada 2021 has received more truth. It's not negating what they received, but it's the fact that he has progressively revealed himself over time. Hebrews 1 tells us that God reveals himself at many times 
and in many ways. And one day, when all things will come into fulfillment, we will actually know all the truth. We will, we will get to interact with the one who created and is the author of all truth. And so movement, this progressive revelation is a movement made by God revealing truth to more truth, eventually revealing the full truth. And so when he's talking about mystery here, he's saying, hey, this mystery is a, a, a truth that God has now begun to unpack and reveal after Christ's crucifixion. And so what we begin to see in, in, in Ephesians is this word mystery is actually used seven times in this epistle. Let me just quick drop a plumb line and let you know what, what he's talking about here. Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, you'll see this on the screen. He's talking about a vertical unity, a vertical unity. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he's purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times will reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. Vertical unity, things in heaven, things here on earth, will be united under Christ. Ephesians 3, 6, is the next time this mystery is unpacked. And Paul says that this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together of the promise in Christ Jesus. You catch that? Heirs together, members together, sharers together. This is an ethnic unity. First one was a vertical unity, heaven and earth. This next one is Greek and Jew. I'm sorry, Gentile and Jew. My bad. Gentile and Jew. You, you begin to see this unity happening ethnically. Fast forward just a smidge into Ephesians 5. Paul goes Old Testament and quotes Genesis by saying, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ in the church. So you get a vertical unity, heaven and earth. You get a, an ethnic racial unity between Gentile and Jew. And here you get a relational unity. And it's parallel relationships, Christ, church, husband, wife. Remember, Revelation 21, our scripture is going to end with a wedding ceremony when the church, the bridegroom of Christ, will be connected with Jesus. And so here... We've seen three different types of unity that this mystery is describing. He kind of culminates this in Ephesians 6. He says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So, what he's telling us here is the gospel is unity. 
It's this message that needs to be declared to those who don't know Christ. And I'm gonna jump out of Ephesians into Colossians 1 and give you a kind of a culminating description of this mystery. 127, you'll see it on the screen. I have become its servant, its servant, the church, which is verse 24. I have become a servant of the church by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, the Lord's people, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, now here it is, which is Christ in you. Christ in you. This mystery that Paul is talking about can be summarized in one word. It's called unity. And this mystery that he's committed his life to is describing the union we have with Jesus. And that's a mystery. It is not something anyone understands outside of his spirit. Why in the world would the creator of all things want to save and redeem me and you? Not only save and redeem me and you, but to do so at the cost of his son and the gift of his spirit? That's a mystery. That we are privileged to know that we get to live out every single day. That's why Paul's a prisoner. He was sharing this truth, and he is doing so because he desperately needs Jesus. He needs his intervention. It's because he lived this mystery. He's experienced the beauty of this unity and has committed his life to Christ. Ephesians 3, 6 and 7. I've already touched on it a little bit. But this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Not only... Can those, remember Tony spoke on this last week, those who were far off, those Gentiles, not only can they come near, but because of this reality, they can be considered as equals. They can be considered as equals not only with the Jews who believe, but they can be considered equals with these apostles. These Gentiles are now co-heirs with Christ. There is a level playing field. They are now not just recipients of this message, but they are ambassadors of this message. They've experienced the mystery and now get to extend this mystery to those around them. Well, have you realized that like Paul, if you've begun a relationship with Christ, you're two things, or more than two things, but one thing, you are a prisoner of Christ. That's not a unique role just to him. 
Secondly, verse seven says he's a servant of the gospel. So you do realize that if you've begun that relationship, if you've experienced this conversion, you now have new roles as a prisoner and a servant. And what does that mean? Church, what that means is that your life is not your own. That this life is not about that promotion. That this life is not about the the behavior of your kids. This life is not about your checking account or the house on that bay. It's not about the Instagram likes or the cute puppy you just got or the hamburger you're gonna eat and take a picture of later, which always makes me hungry. These are all good things, right? But they don't factor into the sum total of the purpose you've been given and you've been redeemed for. Your role is not only to live this union in such a way that others can understand this mystery, but I think your role is to now enter into this relationship and enjoy him. Enjoy the one who has extended this mercy to you. You see, he is glorified when we choose to respond in a way that expresses our trust in Christ. He is glorified when we respond in a way that honors the one who actually chose, Ephesians 1, to redeem you and me. A union with Christ changes everything in our lives. Through that union, you are now, like Paul, a prisoner of Christ and a servant of the gospel. This relationship is not just a decision, but it's a journey that you get to walk with him. It's a privilege to live this life, remembering who he is and what he's done, remembering your desperate need for a savior. It's a privilege to walk this life remembering and repenting often. When, when we, we need to ask for forgiveness, when we doubt, when we lust, when we're prideful, when we're angry, when we sin. It's a privilege to live this life with Christ, remembering who he is, repenting often, and trusting that you've been forgiven. And when we do that, we don't have to live in guilt and shame. Can you imagine what Saul felt after murdering somebody? I bet he was burdened with that. And so have you experienced this mystery? Have you been able to live in unity with your Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, this morning we get to, it's a perfect morning, to take communion. This morning we get to uh, take this privilege of celebrating this unity through communion. It's a symbol. This doesn't save us but it's a symbol of this union we have with Christ. 
And as we, this morning, don't open anything yet, we're gonna talk for a minute, and then we'll actually sing, and then we'll come back to this. So don't, don't jump ahead of me. This morning, as we take the bread, uh, it's an opportunity to remind ourselves, physically remind ourselves of the new identity God has chosen to give us through Christ by his spirit. As we take this bread, it's an opportunity to remember that moment when we began to understand this wonderful mystery. That 2 Corinthians 5.17 moment when it became a reality that we're a new creation, the old being gone and the new come. And then after we take the bread, we will open this cup. And this is an opportunity to think back over the past few days and weeks asking for forgiveness for those moments in which we've trusted in ourselves rather than in Christ. And in doing so, we're resting in the blood of Jesus that he has so graciously offered to us to cover those sinful moments. By taking in this cup, we're trusting in the all-encompassing work of Christ, the never-ending, never-giving-up, always-and-forever kind of love that Jesus allows us to experience. So we this morning through communion get to behold God's wondrous mystery. Would you please consider these lyrics as you prepare your hearts for communion this morning?
love that. Grace unmeasured, love untold. Bringing many sons to glory, see the Father's plan unfold. We're the recipient of that grace and of that love. And this morning, uh, we're glad that you can take communion with us. We at LFC believe that this is a privilege, um, that those who've experienced this union with Christ, that we've discussed this morning, this is, this is a way to, uh, to re-identify with him. If you haven't entered into that relationship, please just take these couple moments to think on what, like Paul, prior to Christ, think about what you're looking to for righteousness. And let's process that after this service. So Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, for I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, verse 25, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the wondrous mystery of this union we get to experience. Father, I pray that we would today leave encouraged to, to think on this mystery, to, to thank you for this mystery but also to live this mystery, this union with you out in the way we interact with our neighbors, our coworkers, our spouses and kids. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your son condescended and took on flesh to ransom us. Father, thanks. We love you, Lord, and are grateful for the life we have now because of Jesus. So, Lord, I commit these friends to you and ask that as we leave, you'd be honored in what we say and what we do and what we think. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, for those of you who are new here, I'm glad you came. I'd love to shake your hand or give you a fist bump. We'll, we'll fist bump this morning. Um, and uh, I'd love to just get a, a name and a face and introduce myself to you. And we have uh, some friends back in an encounter room. If you have needs you'd like prayer for or if you'd just like to ask some questions, please head to my left, your right. Uh, they would love to interact with you today. 
Would you please stand with us as we conclude this service by just singing the doxology together? Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly We love you guys. Have a great day.